Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Back in January, chicken wings caught my attention as they often do at that time of year. A record amount of chicken wings is expected to be eaten by Americans enjoying the Super Bowl. Trey Thomas with more. The National Chicken Council predicts football fans will consume 1.45 billion chicken wings during Super Bowl 57 weekend. That's up about 84 million wings from last year's big game. The organization yeah, one anyway. Um, your food costs, they say, are going to actually be lower than they were last year. That's the assessment from Wells Fargo, WFC. Prices for chicken wings are uh, lower. They've dropped considerably. Wings are down by 22% over the last year. Imagine what they were last year. So what determines the price of those 1.45 billion wings? And what happens to the rest of those 700 million chickens? Good questions for this person. I am Wally Thurman. Uh, I am an agricultural economist. Uh, spent most of my career at North Carolina State University studying agricultural markets, uh, including the poultry industry. Modern broilers don't live that long. Uh, I like to ask people at cocktail parties what age they think the broiler was when it was slaughtered. The broiler, the chicken, they just ate, and they'll say, oh, you know, a year or a couple of years. Well, the answer is seven weeks. Seven weeks. That's for the vast majority of intensively reared eating chickens. I know that there are valiant efforts to extend that for a few lucky birds, but the big problem is that the longer the animal lives, the more it costs to feed, because the modern bird is incredibly efficient. This is part of the remarkable thing about chicken as a protein source. Uh, over the course of that seven weeks, they convert two pounds of feed into a pound of meat. They only need two pounds of feed per pound of meat. Now, you compare that to other sources of animal protein. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but hogs are in the order of eight to ten pounds of feed over the life of the hog to produce a pound of pork. Beef cattle, we're talking 15 or more pounds of feed to convert into a pound of beef. So it's a very efficient means of producing chicken. And that's why chicken is one of the cheapest sources of animal protein you can buy. But it isn't the whole story. Because chicken producers can make even more money by cutting the bird up for you. Some of the bits are more desirable, which means they can command a higher price. But here's an odd thing. Some bits of chicken become even more desirable at certain times of the year which is why America as a whole seems to be obsessed by the price of chicken wings as the Super Bowl approaches. Now, I realize I'm about six weeks late with this episode, though I'm told wings are also big during March Madness, so, you know, still timely. But I did want to learn more about the cost of winging it, which is why I turned to Wally Thurman. The, I'd call it the economics of production in fixed proportions. Every chicken has two wings, so a billion chicken wings amounts to a half a billion chickens. And at the same time, you can't produce chicken wings. There's not a chicken wings industry. There's a broiler chicken industry. And when they produce chickens, they produce the way we describe them, two, 
two portions of breast meat, two wings, two, two thighs, uh, etc. And so, somehow the market has to clear, if there are uh, half a billion chickens produced, it has to clear all those quantities produced. And there are rather different uses for the different parts of the chicken. Some are substitutable one for the other. Consumers might be price sensitive to thighs versus legs versus breast meat. But for the most part, they're sort of dedicated uses of chicken. And chicken wings is the greatest example. And it's a great example because when Super Bowl rolls around in the United States, uh, that is the Super Bowl party snack of choice. And so there's a big spike in demand for chicken wings. Now, the people don't stop eating breast meat at the same time. And so we could talk about this in more detail, but in short, when there are a lot of chicken wings demanded, the chicken producers anticipate this. Super Bowl is a fairly predictable thing. And they produce more chickens. And as economic theory says, the price of wings is going to go up due to the increased demand for wings. But there's no increase in demand for chicken breasts at the same time. And so you get more wings produced, which means more chickens, which means more breast portions, which means that people out there not caring about the Super Bowl find that there are a whole lot more chicken breast portions on the market. Grocery stores need to cut their prices to clear the market so they don't end up accumulating inventories of breast meat. And so the price of breast meat goes down at the same time that the chicken wing price goes up. That's the economic logic. So does that mean that <laughs> that people who eat chicken wings during the Super Bowl are subsidizing people who eat chicken breasts in the weeks after the Super Bowl, or possibly even the weeks before the Super Bowl? Yes, exactly. Uh, you might you might quibble with the use of the term subsidize, depending on what you mean, but it is certainly true that a consumer who is not a wing consumer, but is a breast meat or drumstick consumer, uh, benefits from this increased in demand for chicken wings. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're subsidized in a sense, which is not the usual situation. Uh, you know, if the demand for bread goes up and you and I both are consumers of the same loaf of bread, well, you know, we have to pay a higher price. So that's not a good thing. But this is a complementary output, not the same output whose demand has increased. And, and what happens the rest of the year? I mean, what happens to the relationship between wing prices and, I don't know, thighs or breasts in, say, July? Uh, it, it would revert to the pre-Super Bowl normal. And you can see these, you can see this in the data. Now, a, a peak in the ratio of wing price to breast meat price uh, leading up to the Super Bowl, and then that ratio goes down afterwards. It is wings become more affordable compared to breasts uh, the rest of the year. So it's it's a constant uh, tug, if you will, uh, among demanders for the different portions. It, it all stems from the fact that chickens are produced in fixed proportions. Producers of chickens don't particularly care what the relative prices of parts are. They care about what the sum total of their chickens produced are worth. 
and different consumers consume different parts. Are, do, are people freezing, are producers freezing chicken wings through the year to, to, to ensure they have stocks? Or is this all kind of happening on a, on a more or less real-time basis that producers, are, you know, uh, seven, eight weeks ago were producing a load of chickens because they knew they'd need wings? That, that's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it. My impression is that the poultry producers themselves are not freezing large quantities of wings or any parts to hold in inventories. There, there's some freezing going on for transportation, and there might be anticipatory stock holding and freezing going on by food brokers after the level of the chicken producers. But the short answer is I don't know. That would be a rational economic response to how to get more wings Really, it's a problem of shifting wings from a non-high demand period into a into a higher demand period. And so, I guess a, a rational Super Bowl party giver would actually get chicken breasts and prepare them themselves. Yes, that's correct. And in fact, there's even an innovation in the industry when wings are very expensive. Um, they create wing-like things um, out of uh, out of other parts, out of uh, out of legs. So, <laughs> yeah, wing wing-shaped chicken nuggets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's and it's interesting because from a historical perspective, wings have always been low-value, almost byproducts of the chicken, and so uh, chickens over time have been bred to produce higher proportions of breast meat, which has typically been the, the premium cut. And so now it's a bit of a reversal with the, you know, in recent years, the resurgence of interest in chicken wings. Yeah, there's, there's another bit of the chicken that I think is really interesting in that, and I don't think that'll ever become a high-value item in America, and that's chicken feet. But I've eaten chicken feet in China. Um, they're kind of considered a delicacy, do the chicken feet from America end up in, I don't know, pet food, or do they end up in China? A lot of them end up in China. I can't give you the exact breakdown, but uh, in the trade, chicken feet are known as paws, and the United States exports a lot of paws to China. You use the term subsidize earlier, and I think the same applies here. So, it is not part of uh, culinary culture in America to eat chicken feet. They're put into soups. Uh, they are used in pet food. Some of the so-called lower value, some of the byproducts, the lower value parts of the chicken are sold for pet food in the States. Uh, but if there's an export opportunity for paws in China, which there is, that adds to the, the aggregate demand for a bird. A poultry producer can sell its wings and breast meat, etc., in the United States, and then add on to that the value of the paws now being exported to China. Of course, there's transportation costs involved, and those are important, but nonetheless, it adds to the value of the chicken. If you imagine opening up this trade opportunity of the United States selling chicken paws to China, this, the Super Bowl logic applies here. An increased demand for birds through the increased demand for paws induces U.S. producers to produce more chickens. The paws get sent to China. 
but there still are more birds and more breast portions and more of everything else in the United States. And that drives down the price uh, as people have to move down their demand curves to clear the market. So Chinese consumers are subsidizing U.S. consumers. I think I read somewhere that before this market opened up, U.S. chicken producers had to pay somebody to take the feet away. And now people are willing to pay them for the feet. So that must make quite a change. Yes, yeah. There, there are various parts of the chicken that are left over, if you will, once the standard grocery court store cuts portioned out. And sometimes there's a good market for this offal, O-F-F-A-L, offal. And uh, processors pay chicken producers for those parts. But when the market is not so good for that, uh, demand for pet food is low, say, uh, producers actually have to pay the processors, the awful uh, processors, to take it. So it's it's a situation where sometimes it, it commands a positive price and sometimes you have to pay people to take it away. Um, one of the other things that interests me about the whole chicken breast thing is that you can buy skinless chicken breasts. You can get skinless chicken thighs as well. But um, leaving aside the fact that as a cook, um, I like the fact that the skin is on there. But what happens to the skin? <laughs> the skin of a skinless chicken breast, is, is, does that end up anywhere that you're aware of? It, it definitely goes somewhere. And uh, yeah, I too am a fan of chicken parts with skin on them or, or whole chickens too. There are a lot of products in the grocery store aisle that uh, depend on byproducts of poultry. And if you look at in the United States, Swanson's chicken stock, the pre-made broth or stock, that's, uh, I don't know precisely, but that has to be where a lot of that skin goes because so much of the flavor and fat is, is contained in the skin layer. But that's a guess. Uh, some of it may just go into this rather heterogeneous category of, uh, of awful that uh, might get turned into pet food. And, and when, you, when it comes to larger animals with, with longer lifespans, do the same considerations apply? I mean, I wonder whether, for example, the mania for bacon means that the price of other bits of pork uh, is relatively lower than it would be if people weren't so crazy keen on bacon. Uh, yeah, I think the same logic applies. Uh, I don't think there's any difference. We're still talking about fixed proportion production. Um, it probably holds to less an extent to the longer live meat animals because there's more variability in the beef cow purely grass-fed and ends up a lower fat content of its of its meat, or is it is it grain-fed? And, and there's there's less regularity to the production recipe, if you will, for some of these other animals. That being said, the pork bellies from which bacon comes is going to, by the same Super Bowl logic, is going to reduce the price of uh, pork loins and, and hocks and, and other things. I mean, I will note, just a historical interest, uh, futures markets, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in the United States, a venerable market in which commodities were traded, it never, it didn't trade other parts of the meat, but it would trade uh, pork bellies. Uh, reason for that, I think, being twofold. One is they were a very valuable part of the animal, 
And also they were cured and so could be more easily stored and transported. From the point of view of, of restaurants, suppliers, manufacturers, how important is it for them to keep an eye on sort of the relative prices of different bits of, of meat? And how, and how important is it for them to simply assure themselves that they're going to have enough in total? I don't have a good feel for that. Uh, I, I, think, I think one principle is that a, a fairly small cost share of retail food items is accounted for by the commodity underlying it. You know, I mean, famously, uh, a box of Wheaties cereal, the, the cost share of wheat and Wheaties is you know, 3%, 5%. The rest is other ingredients, manufacturing, marketing. That's true in spades for somebody, for a restaurant. So I'd be surprised if changes in commodity prices had a lot to do with the offerings. Well, I mean, the very fact that there are these reconstituted meats like, like chicken nuggets, um, they can make those out of any old bit of chicken, I suspect, um, and presumably do. Uh, yeah, I think the, uh, the recipes for chicken nuggets are a little more specialized than you might think. They're not a catch-all category, uh, especially the name-branded ones. They, the offal does not go into chicken nuggets, that, that I'm confident. Oh, no, I agree, I agree. But if, if thighs were cheaper than breast, then you might use more thighs one day and more breasts the next day. There would certainly be a strong incentive to do that. Although the machinery, the machinery that produces these items is, is surprisingly high-tech. If you have an image of a chicken processing plant as being uh, a lot of people in white smocks with cleavers, you're off by about a century. Uh, <laughs> modern processing plants are amazingly efficient and populated with artificial intelligence machinery that sizes up carcasses coming down the line. Uh, so in some sense, that that makes things a little less flexible. If you have a recipe that is based on a specialized machine that is making nuggets out of certain cuts of meat, that's going to make it a little it a little more difficult to respond to day-to-day, month-to-month changes in prices. Does that same sophistication apply to the actual portioning of a carcass? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Uh, Machine readers that can detect the variable shapes coming down the assembly line and cutting off just the right breast portion so that it is uniform itself. Uh, that application is one of the prime applications of this sort of technology. And, and it's, it's everywhere too. It's, I mean, if you go outside of, of food production, it's, it's the way the lumber mills process logs and decide how much of it is going to go into plywood and how much of it into planks and how much of it into sawdust. Uh, so, so the kind of um, prejudice that I start off with, which is why do people buy portions of chicken when they could buy a whole chicken and, and get a lot more for their money, I guess... It's the sophistication of the portioning and the, and the ease, the ease with, with which it enables you to eat a chicken. Um, and you're paying for that instead of putting your own input in. Yeah, I think you've nailed it on the head. I think it, it is certainly true, obvious to anybody of a certain age, that it's almost difficult to find a whole chicken now. 
the, the norm is to buy it in parts. And really, you're buying not just the chicken, you're buying the embodied labor. I mean, the way I think about it, you can take a whole chicken home, uh, and then however long it takes you and whatever skill level it requires to do so, you can cut it into the parts that you want. Uh, or you can implicitly pay, uh, Tyson, the, the a large poultry integrator, to do that portioning for you. And a lot of this has to do with participation in, in the labor force. I know uh, a standard story over the last half of the 20th century, in every Western country anyway, was increased female participation in the labor force. And there was no longer a housewife in many homes who specialized in home production including home production of meals. And so what do you do? Well, we could talk about all the reasons for that increase in female labor force participation, but it's a fact. The opportunity costs of having a, a, a housewife at home cutting a chicken got to be too great. They had market opportunities. They could go out on the market, make more money, and then as a substitute at home, you buy more expensive food that embodies the labor that was formerly expended by, by the cook. Professor Wally Thurman. My thanks to him for explaining the economics of production of fixed proportions. And my thanks to you for listening. I'll put some extra bits of information that I found helpful in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. There's also a transcript, thanks to the generosity of the show's supporters. And don't forget, you can also support the show by leaving a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. That helps because it brings the show to people's attention. And it's always great to hear from you. If you liked or hated an episode, drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. And that's all for now. So from me, Jeremy Jervis, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.